Welcome back to Recipe to the Road, episode seven, lucky number seven. This week, I'm talking to someone else about backpacking. If you've already listened to episode two, you know I did a podcast about backpacking that was in Central America and it was like a short trip. So this episode, I'm interviewing Stephen, who is another friend I met in Vancouver, about his trip through South America. That was a much longer trip. He did six months and it got pretty interesting because there was a lot of civil unrest while he was there. If you have any questions or comments about the episode or anything else, let me know on Instagram at recipe to the road or by email recipe to the road at gmail.com. Enjoy the episode and let me know what you think. Tell me a little bit about where you're actually from yourself. Yeah, so I'm from Northwest Ireland. So actually pretty much right on the border with Tyrone. So it's the Northern Irish and Republic of Ireland border. So about three or four kilometers away from that. So uh, Donegal, halfway up the border of Donegal and beside Tyrone. So that's where I'm from. But I moved from there, I suppose, when I was 18 to Galway. and Spent eight years there in college and getting started in my careers until I went traveling. And haven't really lived in Donegal long term since. But yeah, that's pretty much where I'm from. Okay. And um, how long have you been in Canada for then? Two years. So nearly two, exactly two years. Mm. January 2020. Yeah. And before Canada, what kind of traveling had you done? So I saw in 2018, I think. So if you, like, if you back a little bit, I suppose. Uh, when I left college, I really wanted to go traveling. But the realities of money career, all those things start to factor into it. So I was pretty lucky to get a job straight out of college and the job that I really wanted. So I spent five years kind of establishing myself there in the job. And then once I got the college loans, everything paid off, I think it was around 2018. Um, I kind of did the typical thing a lot of people do and went to Asia for six months. Um, started off in Vietnam and Hanoi. Um, knew a few people in Hanoi, but didn't really realize how many people I knew in Hanoi until I went there. Oh, really? So, yeah. So then when I got there, I realized that there's a ton of people out there. Um, so actually, that was my first real experience of proper traveling. And everything was totally different. Like Even getting off the plane and seeing like motorbikes with butchered cows on them, taking them into town to the market and stuff along the motorways. Oh, my gosh. And the taxi guy was like, welcome to Vietnam. <laughs> and that was a real shock because like, just everything was so different. And... Yeah, so it was interesting. It was really interesting. So that's where it all started, traveling. And did that kind of, like, get your curiosity going then? Like, Yeah, it was interesting because it, up until I had the flights booked, I was really excited to get out and, and go traveling. And then after the flights were booked, I, I kept having, like, dreams every so often and getting, like, a little bit panicky and, like, oh, what's it going to be like? I had no idea. So the first few hours of actually being in Vietnam, not knowing what to expect and worried about safety and stuff because you're in a whole new place and you really don't. And like not having any experience of traveling before, you're kind of worried about, well, like, is everyone out to kind of get you or is everyone going to try and make money off you and try and trick you and stuff like that? So that experience of like being in a taxi and the taximan actually breaking a joke about welcome to Vietnam is really kind of relaxing, right? Because it's kind of like, okay, this, this seems okay. Yeah. And it was also really bizarre, right? It was really, really different. Yeah. And then after Asia, what did you do then? Or did you do much traveling after that? No, so I spent six months in Asia. Um, went around Thailand, um, Cambodia, Bali. Um, 
yeah, so we did that for six months in a very unorganized fashion, just kind of going places and figuring out where to go next. And then came back home and started to work remotely. So spent time living back in Donegal, actually, briefly. And then went out to Gran Canaria. Uh, and it's an island off the coast of Africa, but it's owned by Spain. Um, to kind of work out there for a few months as a digital nomad. So well, well, I was working as a software engineer, but the digital, there was a pretty strong digital nomad community out there. Well, so before COVID, so you're very so that was on befo- trend, before, very before the trend. Yeah, yeah. So I've been working remotely since 2018, I suppose, yeah. So Great. the whole novelty of walking around in sweatpants is over for me. I actually <laughs> really like the hybrid model now of going to an office. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that there and then moved back to Ireland. I'd met my partner at the time. So I spent some time living in Dublin. That's where uh, Siobhan lived. And then we had decided kind of pretty quickly after we had met that First of all, I wasn't staying in Ireland, and Siobhan wanted to travel too, so we decided we were going to do, move to emigrate to Canada, but before that, we'd take the opportunity, while we were both between jobs, to go to South America and travel out there for X number of months. We hadn't decided how long at the time that we'd do it for, but that, that was the next kind of port of call. Amazing. So what did you, like, how did that go? Where did you start, and what did you do there? I followed a pretty similar plan as I did in Asia, which was not much plan at all. So we... Figured so. I think we just booked flights into Santiago and Chile, which is pretty much the center of Chile. And we didn't know if we were going to go north or where we were going to go south. Um, so we literally arrived there and just didn't have a plan. Um, because it wor- had worked so well for me when I was traveling on my own in Asia, I was really comfortable doing that. And because in Asia, I had so many good experiences that I wouldn't have had if I was on a schedule to keep up catching buses or flights. I met people who, and, and especially in hostels, said, hey, I've just been to this place, and then you would go there. So that's, after we got to Chile, we started to kind of formulate a plan by talking to the people in the hostel and talking to the owners of the hostel and things like that, and started to get a rough idea of where to go next. And that sort of worked out as well in South America, did it? It worked out in South America. It definitely was a little bit tougher in South America in terms of just the size of it. So I know like Asia, Southeast Asia is big as well, um, but... South America, the size of South America is a big factor and also the, the cost of the flights. In Asia, if you decide you're in the wrong place or you want to go somewhere like Bali, for example, from Vietnam, which I did within the first month, um, it was like a $100 flight, seven-hour flight from Vietnam to Bali. In South America, that's not the case. The flights are pretty expensive. Um, so everything is by bus journey. So you, I think we had to plan a little bit more carefully there than I did in Asia. But it worked out overall. Still saw a lot of things. Um, there was a lot of... seemed to be every country had a revolution while we were there. Like Canada was the third country, I think, to go on lockdown that we'd been in when we came here because of COVID. But oh. Chile went on lockdown over there because of political riots. Bolivia, similar region. I think they were ousting their prime minister while we were there. So that whole country was rioting and went in lockdown. So I was glad, really glad we didn't plan anything because you couldn't. Yeah. Right? Wow. Okay. Yeah. And what actually route did you end up taking then? So we started going north from Santiago. Well, we dipped into to Argentina, to Mendoza first. Um, so we were in Santiago for, I think, a week, just getting over the jet lag and, and everything else. And we seen the Men- we had heard people had been to Mendoza in Argentina, and, and we knew that drive was up over the um, the Andes Mountains. Oh, so amazing. 
we ended up getting a bus into Mendoza and it was, it was beautiful. So you, re- you literally go up to the borders at the top, almost, well, from my perspective, it was the top. I'm not actually sure if that's correct, but you go from like 30 degree heat up into like the single digits and then back down again into Mendoza. And then when we came, so we spent a week in Mendoza and when we came back, Chile had totally transformed because the riding had started while we were away. So we were pretty lucky that we knew somebody in a hostel that owned a hostel. We had the contact details. We, we had reserved a room before we left. Because when we came back, literally the whole city was unrecognizable from when we left. And we were able to get, we knew, we kind of knew where we were going in the city and could figure things out that way. But I was happy we had been there. Wouldn't we be in the end of the world if we landed in the middle of it? I think you always will find help if you're aware of the right people to look for. Mm. But it was amazing, the, the difference. It looked like a totally different city. And did you have to leave them because of that? Or? No, so... There was a curfew, so it was, I think the curfew is 8 p.m., and again, we were planning where to go. So the hostel we were in was okay, so we said, Let, let's plan there, and trying to figure out where we could go was a little bit more difficult then because, we were, first of all, trying to figure out how serious was was, yeah. was important, right? Um, but as the days went on, you know, found it, for example, we were in a park one day working out, and like this whole, basically, a tank with the water pressure gun came like chasing people down the street and we were caught in the middle of it and we ran away from it and we kind of we found in that that everyone was pretty friendly towards us it sounds like a really unfriendly situation <laughs> it sounds yeah really like uh, like an oxymoron but it everyone was pretty friendly to us and and that was as extreme i think as it was going to get you we could have been silly and got caught up in like proper rioting where people were demolishing shops and stuff which wasn't really that common but that's all that was on the news Right, so right. you know, so when but when we were actually most of the protests that we saw were more like a carnival atmosphere with like people beating drums and pans and stuff. Okay. So once we had figured that and participated a little bit in those kind of outdoor party things, we, we were like, okay, let's we'll start going north now. So I can't remember the first place we went or the first town we went to. San Pedro de Atacama, I think. Yeah. That's what it was called. That was And that's still in That's Chile. the northern border of Chile. So that's okay. we worked our way north. I can't remember the towns in between there that we stopped in, but that's where we went to cross the border into Bolivia and do the salt flats. So that's the that's the that's what we aimed for. Okay. From Santiago, Chile, right? This is where we want to go next. We know we want to see the salt flats. So let's just aim for there and take it kind of town by town as we go along. And what's the salt flats? So the salt flats are in uh, I can I can never say it. I call it uni. I think it's called O-Uni or U-Uni. Okay. It's basically two U's. But the salt flats, um, they're quite high in altitude. It's basically a dried lake, I think, during okay. the during our winter months. Um, it's pretty dry lake, but it's all salt. So the bed of it's all salt. So if you see any photos of it, it literally just looks like snow, I think. If you were to see a photo of it, you would assume it's snow. It's just yeah. a flat, plain landscape. And it's, uh, it's pretty unique. So we stayed like in a hot salt hotel there and stuff the bricks were actually made of just salt so that trip in there was done with like six people in a four by four squeezed in for three days oh my God. and like, the, the altitude was crazy like, like at night time you'd wake up not being used to the altitude was crazy yeah so you'd wake up at night time gasping and stuff like that oh no yeah it was it was it was good it was a good experience it wasn't a bad experience yeah just it was so different yeah so yeah i'd say your lungs are so good afterwards that's what we had hoped. So we, we hoped all the hiking and stuff would pay off, but it didn't didn't work out like that. No. I think people who were born there and grew up with it, they, you know, they're super at soccer and stuff. Then they come down to like normal levels of altitude. But yeah. No, it didn't seem to, maybe the diet wasn't as good as it should have been or whatever, but mm. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely tougher to do. That's mad. Yeah. And then you went across into Bolivia and were you saying there was, yeah. um, 
there was issues in Bolivia. There too. was yeah. So we got to Bolivia and politi- uh, I think Bolivia we had known it was going through a period of political unrest when we got to South America. I think that had started before we got there. So when we were in hostels and stuff, that's what we were kind of asking people originally. You know, have you been to Bolivia? Because we really wanted to go in there. And for a while, we thought it was off the cards. But we had met some people and we're like, right, it's good. We'll go. And so I think we got, so we did the, the whole uni thing. Um, so we got a bus to La Paz. The, the driver and the, the attendant on the bus, they were very panicky. So the bus, was, like, it was an overnight bus and they flew to La Paz really, really fast because there's stories of people having to stop on buses at the airport and the bus wouldn't take them into the city and stuff and they would get kind of stranded and things there. Oh. And the riding in the airport, I think, was pretty rough. Um, so, so we, why were they having to stop in the airport? Because the bus wouldn't go into the city where they feared the riots were worse. Oh, so okay. the, the airport was where the bus would drop them off. Oh, okay, okay. So... Yeah, so that, that was our introduction to Bolivia, basically, and La Paz. Well, we were lucky, yeah. So we, we got into La Paz. The bus driver, like, we were there, like, three hours ahead of schedule. He was like, right, everybody out. And, like, it was a whole panic to get out. And we got a hostel just as we got off the bus that was pretty close by. It was, like, 4 a.m., I think. So, and you were able to get a hostel at 4 a.m.? Yeah, we knew there was the Wild Rover Hostel in La Paz, which is an Irish-ran hostel, that we wouldn't be stuck place we got was just right beside where the bus left us off it was really hard to figure out where to get a hostel because we'd heard stories of the buses stopping at the airport buses stopping outside the city so once we knew there was a place we could go if we were stuck we were like let's just try and find a place when we get there and we were supposed to get there at like 9 a.m not right. 4 a.m so whatever that is five hours ahead of schedule maybe so we got there we got into the hostel we had our night's sleep everything else woke up in the morning and everything seemed to be pretty okay because we had the introduction to all the unrest Chile, it seemed pretty alright, and especially all the stories we heard were always stories were always exaggerated, right? So it wasn't as bad as what everyone said, and it actually was. We found peaceful enough, and then we went to that Wild Rover hostel and went in there because that was it. And we stayed there actually for the next few nights because that was kind of a good base to figure out where to go. There's a lot of tours going from there, and we were interested in doing one of their tours that they did into Peru. So we kind of went there, and <laughs> when we went there, the the protests, it ended up actually being right kind of in the center of the city, and that's where a lot of the protests were. At this stage, one of those nights, the army had literally, so the protesters were, would have been facing the army, and the army literally joined the protesters. We're, oh, wow. We're, we're not, whatever the cause was, which I, I can't explain accurately enough, um, they weren't supporting the president, the president anymore, so they turned and, and joined the protesters. So it got really Larry Again, it was, they, they were really friendly to us, and, mm. and, and, being obviously a tourist in that part of the world, being a pale-skinned Irish guy, they they would split like the sea, let you pass and everything else. So we felt safe. Yeah. But they were so pro- nice. they were protesting with dynamite and stuff outside the hostel. Oh my and gosh. Like, being in an Irish hostel, there was an Irish pub in there. So you'd have the boom and then hey. <laughs> so it was, it was unique. <laughs> I can't believe. I no, I can very much believe that, but at the same yeah. time, it just sounds unbelievable. It was. So... We, it was very comfortable for us, but if you hadn't been in that setting and had been in a room in your own, and the dynamite, apart, I, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but apparently a lot of miners were protesting. So they were using dynamite. I think they were using whatever makes the loud sound, but apparently it didn't cause a lot of damage to wherever they were throwing it. So okay. it was safe, quote unquote. Just loud, like. It was so loud. like <laughs> The lights and stuff would shake, 
Oh my god. Uh, and then, yeah, a shot would happen in the bar. And everyone, hey! <laughs> so it was very unique. It's <laughs> so funny. Um, and you weren't scared at all then, were you not? It was a little bit worrying, to be honest, when we first heard the dynamite. Like, you no, know, that was. Fair. Yeah, it was. Like, to me, I was like, what's happening? And at one stage, they had uh, really closed up the doors of the hostel. So they were like, and people were kind of. There's a lot of unrest outside. I never felt unsafe, but felt a little bit unsure of how bad things were going to get. Right. Um, but never felt unsafe. Was actually quite taken back by the experience. It was so unique. Yeah. So that probably, and the few pints probably helped. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I never felt afraid. And even in Chile and stuff, I, I always feel when you're in the middle of something, it's not as intimidating as you would think it is when you're not a part of it, depending yeah. on what it is. I think when you're traveling, you have to always be wary to, you know, make sure you have track of all your belongings, make sure that you're looking at the crowd that you're wandering into and kind of have a good gauge of, is this a dangerous situation or not? And if it is, just don't go in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where we were, we had felt that it, that it was a safe place to be and we could understand the people there clearly enough. A lot of them were Irish. A lot of them had lived there. So because of all that and because we'd made those decisions, I didn't really feel unsafe. A little bit unsettled by the dynamite exploding outside the door. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. It's funny how there's just Irish people like set up everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. You're, you're like rats, you're never more than yeah. what is it, 10 feet from one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and were there many restrictions then? Like like you were saying, there was a curfew in uh, Chile. So there was a curfew in Chile. Um, the restrictions are mainly around where it was safe to travel or not. So we would have spent more time in Bolivia. Um, if it hadn't been for the political unrest. And sometimes in Bolivia, it got pretty bad. There were stories of them you know, dragging their representatives into the streets and throwing paint at them and stuff like this. So we were like, forget that. Um, we seen La Paz and spent a few days there. Went to, what was there? It was a good book called Marching Powder and it's based on a prison in La Paz. Okay. Uh, so we spent time, we didn't get into the prison. Um, but a lot of tourists have got into the prison and it's a great book if you, if you look at Marching Powder it's mm, basically yeah. a prison that's run by the prisoners so we oh. yeah so it's it's very interesting sponsored by Coca-Cola no way it. yeah genuinely uh, and it's like still a working prison and people can go and it's visit. a working prison now and like families would go in and stay with people who were in there and stuff uh, it's I'd say it's changed since the book was written by yeah. Rusty Young but it's a really good book to read that's so very interesting. Yeah, marching powder was great, and I was reading it as we were traveling there. Oh, perfect! Um, so that was awesome. And we met a guy on the square, yeah, in the past called Crazy Dave, who he claimed to be an ex inmate. I think he was probably, uh, but he did tours. So you would go and hang around the square and wait on this guy, and he would just kind of show up and just hope that he appeared. Like and kind of yeah, and <laughs> runs out of nowhere, and immediately you're like, this is this is the guy. Of course, it's him. So we did the things like that in the past that we wanted to do. And then we decided to get out of Dodge. So, the, the, uh, yeah, so they closed the borders. Um, and so in the Wild Rover, they do, they're partnered with this tour called um, Peru Hop and Bolivia Hop. And that's how we were interested in doing the first um, half of Peru. So we decided, okay, we're going to get on that tour. They were buses that were actually getting out because some buses were struggling to get out of the country at that stage. And then we got out and just as we got out, they closed the borders. And why were some buses able to get out and some... Weren't? I'm not sure what the story was. Uh, I'm not... Because it was kind of confusing when the borders were open and when they were closed. But some buses, I think, some routes were blocked. I think that was the, one of the main things. So we went to Copacabana, um, which is close to the border with Peru. And 
we were supposed to get a connected bus and didn't come, and then that Peru Hop company sent the bus and actually got us across the border. Oh, okay. so I think the services were just very disrupted. It's probably more the buses didn't run rather than the buses were turned around. Okay. Yeah. And then you went into Peru. Peru. Yeah. There was no political unrest there. Or? Peru was probably was chilled. Definitely chilled. Yeah, <laughs> That's think, good. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're able to recover it. Yeah. <laughs> we hadn't felt like we'd missed out that much. Like a lot, a lot of hostels and stuff in Chile had been really quiet. So there was a novelty of having the dorm room to yourself and stuff because obviously a lot of people left the country. But yeah, getting to Peru then kind of felt like, okay, everything's normal now. What are all the things we want to do in Peru? And we were able to plan that kind of uninterrupted without accounting for uh, national revolution, I suppose. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, you probably just like would have even thought that you'd be relieved that there's not like yeah a, like such big like riots on. Yeah. yeah. Just learn to appreciate a bit of calm. Like, exactly. <laughs> And um, so then from Peru, you, did you just work up through Peru and to Colombia, was it? Or? Pretty much, yeah. So we, we, yeah, the first main place was we wanted to get there was Cusco, actually. So that's where a lot of the trails to Machu Picchu start. Um, oh, brilliant. Machu Picchu was like one of the big things we wanted to do, like everyone. Yeah. Who, who does when they go out there. So we spent a bit of time in Cusco, figured out, uh, you know, when we got there, we had no tour booked. So we figured out... Uh, what we were, what kind of tour we wanted to do, and tried to find one. We ended up getting one pretty cheap. So, uh, and that was like a, basically a mix of hiking and a little bit of uh, bus ride and biking to Machu Picchu for four days. So that, that was that was good. The trip took four days. The hike, yeah. So you can do, you can actually do like uh, the whole thing hiking if you want to do from Cusco, pretty sure, or from an area outside Cusco. Um, but the one we did, we, we weren't up for that at that stage. <laughs> How long does it take hiking? Probably like weeks. No, I think, well, you start from the other side of the mountain range, isn't it? I really don't know. But uh, we kind of took the, so I think it takes four days, wherever they hike from. But we, we kind of took the bus a part of it, stop in a place, do activities, that type of thing. One oh, day was amazing. full hiking. Um, one day was like in a down road mountain biking. Not really mountain biking. Because the mountain bikes were around, but it was it was a road, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a day pretty much hiking up to Machu Picchu, yeah. So oh, good. okay. Yeah. And did you love that? Was it? It was nice. Everything you expected it to it be. It was really nice, yeah. It was actually really bizarre. There's a city at the bottom, or a town. So it's basically based on the train tracks that you get to, which is the end of the line, because there's a train that goes in from Cusco as well to the base of Machu Picchu. And it's as you would expect it to be in a rural place. You have shacks there are shops and everything else and people running about and then you walk in the train line I think it's like a few hours walk and at the actual base of the actual mountain match beach is on is this like tourist town that's been totally built up with bars restaurants uh-huh. everything and it was so it was very uh, it was very bizarre if we actually know it was there I think we probably would have spent another night there because it was so uh, it was built on a mountain and it was crazy at the backdrop of like Oh, Machu Picchu's up there and actually yeah. realize you can't see it from the ground which is one of the big things which is why the, the Incas built it that way because they, when they were being invaded they, that's how they hid it was one of the final settlements I don't think it was because it's still so high up because it's it, the way it's built and it's like built into the top of the mountain and it's built in such a way that you can't see it when you're looking up brilliant so that was it was interesting to spend time in that town so you could play Get with your mind but actually see okay I can't see anything up there that's mad. Yeah, that was mad. Yeah, then you went from... So we, we started working our way north through Peru, 
then I think again the towns or the blurry improve. They were just little seaside small towns. kind of seaside towns. Um, one place was actually really interesting, Wakachina. Um, it was so you have the San Pedro Desert in Peru as well, which is huge, um, and there's this town called Wakachina, and it's it's basically an oasis in the middle of not in the middle of this desert it's actually on the edge of the desert so it's only like maybe a 30 or 40 minute drive from the nearest town to where this is um and yeah it was really really cool because it's literally a lake that's circled by hostels and restaurants and then just sand dunes in the background oh um, cool you could do sandboarding there and dune buggy riding and all that stuff there was so much there we spent I think four or five days there and that was just really unique it was Really, really different. Is um, sandboarding like people like on a snowboard and like going snowboarding down? the sand? Yeah, I've seen videos of that. Yeah, <laughs> I really want to do that. It was cool. We we done it in Peru before that as well, but the the altitude in uh, sorry in in Chile we done it in San Pedro, the Atacama on the border with Bolivia, uh, but the altitude there was crazy. You had to hike up the dunes, yeah. so for every run down you had, you had to hike back up again. Where this one. We went out on dune buggies. Uh, well, we were driven on these. They were like fifteen seater almost. Okay. Um, so we were brought out on those to the top of the dunes, and we went down, and it was great. I nearly broke my tailbone, I think, on it, but it was, oh, no. it was great. Yeah. Was it not real soft? Like it was, yeah. but at the bottom of one of the. So I stood. Uh, I'd skateboarded a lot, and mistakenly thought I would be able to stand and go down, and a lot of other people were going on their chest, and at the bottom of the sand and I think a lot of wind had blown away yeah. the sand and I'm not really sure but it was, it was probably just really really solid sand and at that stage I'd come off and just slid along on my ass and, and yeah I had to get kelped up off a oh, chair no. and everything when we were eating for the next few days and it was sore it was sore for the rest of the trip oh, but um, the <laughs> I think what Siobhan found the funniest was I had to sit in the dune buggy holding onto the roof the whole way back to the hostel because oh, I could, really couldn't sit down <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like set of neck pillows and stuff, so it ruined my back. Jeez. But uh, it was well worth it. It right. was so unique, like just the feeling. Once you hike over the first dune or get driven over the first dune, uh, it feels like you're actually in the middle of a desert. That's all you see. So maybe for anyone who's been to Dubai and stuff, I, I haven't been there, but to me it was really unique. Similar to here, when you walk into the mountains and you just see snow, yeah, you've never seen it before. It's really breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it was. I definitely recommend it. Wakachina. Yeah, we paraglided as well over the sand dunes. Is that the one where a boat is pulling you, or no? So you're just uh, ah. to run off the edge of. Usually, people do it at cliffs or hills, and this was just off a sand dune, and you're attached to a huge kite. And um, is someone like driving? And there was a man there okay. doing yeah, doing all the stuff that I didn't know how to do. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to like the probably the misplaced sense of comfort that it was just sand if you fell yeah. so that made it less intimidating but that you was, learned that it's not just no, sand no, I <laughs> fell off my own feet on a board <laughs> and from there then you kept heading up did you go to Colombia next so you went to the Nazca lines next which was also really interesting so the, the Nazca lines are um, basically a group of glyphs in the sand or on, on, underneath the sand uh, in the middle of the desert so you can see them from the air and they've been there for a few thousand years no one really knows um, how they were created or like especially 
just the size of them, they're they're like they're, some of them are like pictures of like a snake, some of them are different glyphs of everything else. You, you, if you look them up, you'll, you'll see. If you, if you look up Nazca lines, you, you'll see all the different glyphs. And the, the real mystery is how did people design those thousands of years ago without having the perspective that you would get from the air? Oh. So we went there. We were really interested in that. And it was 90 euro, I think, to do the tour, which is relatively expensive when you're backpacking. Yeah. Um, we did that in Peru as well, and that was really, really worth going to. Oh, that and sounds class. It was cool. And there was another town as well we went to. It was like a mini Galapagos Islands. Paracas uh, was, was the other time we went to, which was, like a, as, as I say, it was like a mini Galapagos Islands. We took you out on the board, or sorry, on a boat, and just a little bit of rings around the islands because we weren't going, we didn't do the Galapagos Islands when we were there it would cost a few thousand and we emigrating to Canada after that we just didn't have money or were comfortable spending that money doing that there yeah. um, so we did this instead and it was a really obviously nothing like what the Galapagos would be but it scratched the itch enough for us to be okay that's fine and tried ceviche there it made ceviche did a ceviche making course what's ceviche? it's basically a, a raw fish dish mm. so they You can get it here, actually, in Vancouver, uh, in some places, but it's it's Peruvian. So there's different types of ceviche. Um, the one that we did the cooking class for was um, fish, and it's basically they mix a certain blend of spices, and then they put lime juice and stuff into like a steel bowl, and that kind of cooks the fish, the lime juice, and all the citrus. Mm. And it's gorgeous. There's a place down in Gastown, Peruvian restaurant. You would never really see it unless you're looking for it. If you look for the clock in Gastown, There's a split spot in there that does ceviche, and it's really, really nice. I pronounce it like the DJ. I think it's ceviche is really what you're supposed to say, <laughs> not ceviche. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, it's really nice. Okay, guys, so we're going to leave it there for this week, but don't worry, that's not the end of Stephen's story. We'll be back next week with part two, where we'll talk about Stephen's time spent in the Amazon rainforest, wandering into a dodgy part of Cali in Colombia, and island hopping from Colombia to Panama and more. What do you think of Stephen's trip so far? Let me know. My contact details are coming up in the usual spot. Thanks for listening and chat to you next week. Thank you for listening to Recipe to the Road podcast. If you want to contact the show or you have any comments or questions, you can get me on Instagram at recipe to the road or by email recipe to the road at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow my journey and see what I'm doing at the moment, you can also see that on my Instagram at Recipe to the Road. Thank you for listening.